This episode of the ACB Advocacy Update has been made possible in part through the support of ACB of Minnesota. You're listening to the ACB Advocacy Update. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our discussion of advocacy at federal, state, and local levels, or different levels of advocacy, um, primarily from the perspective of um, pedestrian safety and transportation issues. And I would like to first just um, introduce briefly the other members of our panel we have, I am Becky Davidson. I'm co, I am chair of the Pedestrian uh, Environment Access Committee, formerly known as the Environmental Access Committee, but now we're the PEAC. And I also would like to uh, welcome Sheila Styron, who chairs our Transportation Committee. And these two committees work in tandem quite often. So um, you often, when one of us is here, the other one is here. We also I'm also a co-chair, to be honest. I, I, yeah, Claire Stanley is my co-chair. co-chair. <laughs> yes, Sue Crawford is mine. Um, and then we also have um, Chris Bell, who's an ACB board member and a longtime expert on the Americans with Disabilities Act, has quite a long history um, with that and is, um, is has joined us. And our presenter today is... Beth Osborne, and Beth is the uh, director of Transportation for America, which is a nonprofit that um, that works through transportation um, issues to uh, ensure that people uh, have transportation to necessary um, situations, uh, jobs, services, etc., regardless of what mode of transportation or their abilities. Um, to either to use it. So I don't want to spend a lot of time introducing Beth because she has a, a lot to, to tell us, a lot of background working both in the federal government and the legislative sector, as well as now with um, Transportation for America. So Beth, we welcome you and thank you for joining us. We look forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you so much for inviting me here today. I really appreciate it. And it's, uh, it's exciting to continue to build out a partnership with, you know, those that we know are entirely reliant uh, on a safe system for walking and getting around outside of a car, but are so often denied uh, exactly what we're looking for. Um, As Becky said, I'm Beth Osborne. I'm the director of Transportation for America. Uh, We do tend to work nationally. That does not mean just federally. We do work with a lot of localities and states, but we do have a national perspective uh, and therefore we are pulled into a lot of federal work. So what I'm going to talk about today is uh, what came out of the infrastructure bill that was passed uh, into law last fall and where there's opportunity there. I'm going to talk about uh, some of the challenges that still lay ahead, and then I'm going to talk about what we can do about those challenges. So starting with the infrastructure bill, also known as the IIJA, something I find hard to say and means nothing, so I just call it the infrastructure bill, if that's okay with everybody. Um, 
the the upside of the infrastructure bill uh, is that it was it provides significantly more funding uh, for a lot of programs that my organization finds very important. But the downside is it provides significantly more funding for a lot of programs that my organization finds problematic. Uh, the bipartisan agreement when it comes to transportation is that all boats shall rise, including the ones that we wish would sink. Um, so uh, let me get into why, why I say that. I'm going to start again on the positive side. There are some really interesting changes to the program. The biggest one is what used to be a tiny, tiny inner city passenger rail program is now a really sizable program, almost as big as our national transit program. Um, that is 100% a result of a president who has ridden Amtrak from Delaware to DC and is very committed to providing the same kind of service to people in other parts of the country. There's also uh, historically high funding that will go out by competition, competitive grant programs. Those are the programs where people propose projects uh, that are eligible for the program and they compete against each other uh, for awards that USDOT offers. The overwhelming majority of programs go out by formula, which means there are legislative parameters put on how the money is shared amongst all the parties, usually state departments of transportation, and USDOT must follow that formula no matter what, no matter how the states perform or, or don't perform. And the idea is this is the money that they can use mostly within their discretion and as long as they follow the eligibility rules in the law, there's really no more oversight. So the, the, there are historically more competitive programs. However, they are still a small portion of the overall program, about 5%. There are also some new programs focused on issues like safety, complete streets, equity, climate, resilience. And, uh, and those are important as well. What is also important to remember is that of the money that is going to uh, state departments of transportation, the main recipients of funding, 75% of the money goes to them through two programs that are very flexible, that can be used for most anything. And all of the programs that are receiving a lot of attention, like the new carbon reduction program or the new complete streets program. These are the ones that fit in the rest of the pie. So for example, the climate program known as the carbon reduction program makes up 2% of formula funds as compared to 75% of these big flexible funds. Um, the, uh, in terms of resilience, that's a 3% of the pot. The Highway Safety Improvement Program is 6% of the pot. And I mention this because I want people not to focus on the program that has the name of your priority on it. I want us all to focus on all of the money. And what the tradition has been is if there's a program called 
safety program, all the safety advocates fight over getting that money and how to spend that money well, even when it's five or 6% of spending. And they let the other huge portion of the pie get spent any way the DOTs want them to. We want to focus on, you know, if safety is a priority, every dollar needs to go to safety. And so we still have a challenge ahead of us. Um, these are, like I said, highly flexible dollars. But it means that the states have the flexibility to choose whether or not they focus on priorities like safety. So, uh, and then you will hear that there is, uh, there, there are flexibilities and a lot of times they will be called new. Most of them are not new. Most of them have always been there. They just have not been utilized by the departments who get the money because these are departments that have been created uh, to build roadways and mostly high-speed roadways. So, the reason we have the problems with our current system has to do with the focus of these departments of transportation. My organization creates a report called Dangerous by Design. Um, part of my team is the National Complete Streets Coalition. And Dangerous by Design has shown every time it comes out that fatalities are increasing for those uh, walking and rolling. And they are increasing disproportionately for Black and Native Americans. Black Americans have an 82% higher rate of fatality as pedestrians and Native Americans and, and uh, Native Alaskans, 221% higher rate of fatality as a pedestrian. The exposure is the same in urban and rural settings, uh, bad, both places, and almost identical. And 2020 and 2021 were two years that had record increases in overall fatalities, but also in pedestrian fatalities. We are preparing the newest, uh, latest Dangerous by Design as we speak. In fact, right before this meeting, we had a planning call about the analysis we're doing of the data from 2020 that were just released. The reason for this ever-increasing danger to those of us who either choose or, or must travel outside of a vehicle a lot of the time, is that the priority in the design and the building of our roadways is for speed. Um, it, it's for moving cars quickly. Most of the programs grow out of the highway, national highway system and interstate system uh, uh, programs, and they now apply in a one-size-fits-all way to most every road built at any level of government. Uh, the roadways are speedy. There are not accommodations for people who are outside of a car. And the way we develop our communities ends up uh, spread it, very spread out. So even uh, you know where you might want to walk, your destinations become further and further apart and they all play into each other. If you build a roadway for speed, people aren't going to build uh, you know, a dense row of businesses and retail and uh, restaurants there because no one wants to have their dinner right by a, a highway. They want to have their dinner by a beautiful main street. Um, and uh, as that, that development spreads out, more people have to drive. Now you've got congestion. Now you've got to widen the roads. 
fewer people are going to walk. It all creates a constant momentum towards building more and more high-speed roads and cutting those who want to get around or need to get around other ways out of the system. Um, basically, the, uh, the foundation is when we built the interstates and the highways, um, we built for speed and we knew in the 1950s and 40s as the national highway system and then the interstate system started getting built that you could not have development, intersections, driveways, or people near high speed. So we built the interstates separated from those things. However, we spent the last 40 to 50 years taking what we knew then that you couldn't have high speed autos by uh, driveways, people, intersections, and development, and sticking those high speeds right there, right by those very things. And then we're shocked that it creates a dangerous situation. So basically what we need to be teaching the professionals is where you have development, intersections, driveways, and people, the speeds need to come way down. Think Main Street. Where you want speed, you have to separate it from all those points of conflict. Think the interstates. And the reason for this is the faster a person drives, the more the driver's field of vision narrows, meaning their ability to spot a potential conflict goes way down, while at the same time, their ability to respond and avoid a conflict goes down too. And then a crash is more likely to be deadly at those higher speeds. At 20 miles per hour, more crashes, most crashes can be avoided, but where there is a crash, 90% of pedestrians will survive that crash. At 30 miles per hour, the survival rate drops to 60%. And at 40 miles per hour, it drops to 20%. However, the entire program of transportation at all levels is designed on speeds. When we design a road, we start with a standard called level of service, which is about the speed and the density of vehicles. Pedestrians don't fit in it at all. We don't design for pedestrians. They are an add-on at the end at best. Performance standards that, that DOTs, Departments of Transportation, rely on, like congestion, they don't mean what we mean by congestion. They really just look at vehicle speed. So if you go 60 miles per hour in circles, you have successfully defeated congestion. But if you go 20 miles per hour uh, and arrive at your destination in five minutes, and the speed limit was 30 miles per hour, that is a congestion that must be fixed. So they're not, they're really thinking in those interstate terms rather than whether or not you can arrive where you're going within a convenient and reasonable period of time. And wildly, where congestion is reduced, that is counted as a safety benefit in spite of the fact that on our regular surface roads, when we reduce congestion, we speed up travel and we know that higher speed travel is less safe. Uh, so it is, uh, like I said, everything is really oriented towards reducing uh, uh, hindrances to the driver. And unfortunately, pedestrians are often considered uh, hindrances. Um, this creates particularly harsh uh, circumstances for people of color, for lower income people, and for folks in rural areas. Um, we often forget that uh, rural areas have communities where people live. And that rural is not just the great wide open. 
And so when I'm talking about rural areas that are dangerous to pedestrians, it's where we tend to find a lot of pedestrians in those rural small towns and those those rural clusters of development. Over 1 million households in predominantly rural counties have no car. There are almost 300 counties that have at least 10% of households with no access to a car, and the majority of them are in rural counties, mostly in places like Kentucky, West Virginia, South Dakota, Arkansas, uh, the Carolinas, Georgia, Alabama, my home state of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alaska. Household in rural areas and urban areas are finding that their, their trips are getting longer as the things they need are being placed further apart. And the solution they're offered is more high-speed roadways. Um, so we actually did a study recently that found that the trip burden is falling the most on those that live in low-density rural areas. Secondly, it's in low-density urban areas. And compact rural and compact urban are being affected the least. So there's some interesting things to learn there, which is one, uh, while there are differences between rural and urban areas, there are a lot similar between rural and urban centers, like my community of Columbia Heights in Washington, D.C., which is my little rural town in the middle of Washington, D.C. that just happens to back up to the little rural town of Mount Pleasant which is the next neighborhood over. Um, and now I'm gonna finish up with what to do. Um, the number one piece of recommendation I can provide in terms of addressing the problems with the transportation system, and again, none of them are solved by the infrastructure bill. We just have more money in a program with flexibility that will require us to advocate for changes in the approach. My number one piece of advice is do not take no for an answer. If you are told by someone in a public works agency or department of transportation that they can't provide an accommodation you are looking for, ask them where that impediment comes from. Where is it written? It's very important to know if their impediment is in the law, a regulation, a simple procedure, or a custom, because the way we tackle that impediment is very different. But you might find that you, by asking this question, help the transportation official that you are talking with learn that they have a misperception of what their rules are. Sometimes it is simply a result of not realizing that what has become a custom isn't a rule. That happens to all of us. You get so used to doing things some way, you don't realize that it was a choice made by your agency and they have the full opportunity to change uh, their direction. Sometimes Folks in the agency don't realize that the law has changed because if you are a design engineer, you are probably not reading the U.S. code with any frequency. So I, my policy director just came out of the Department of Transportation in Washington, D.C., and he can say that uh, studying policy in this capacity has pointed out to him that a lot has changed that even he didn't realize. So it's useful to make sure that those engineers and planners are going and checking on what the law says 
um, as of today. And then sometimes there are folks in agencies that say that they can't do something when they mean they don't want to do something. And the way you ferret that out is ask the question, make them show you why they can't do it. And uh, if the answer is because we don't want to, we need to make them state it and admit that they have made a choice because that is can be used uh, in, in a lot of ways as well. I will point out that we have created uh, a, an infrastructure bill portal with a lot of resources there about what programs are eligible for different types of funding. Um, we have a, a fact sheet on active transportation, um, specifically so that people don't have to go learn every program, but rather say, I wish I could fund more transit in my community. And it just has all of the programs that can be used for transit with a citation in the law so that if you're told that that program can't be used for that project you want, whether it be transit or active transportation, you can point them to the citation in the law that says, in fact, they can. Um, I know that uh, the, the, the blind community has also faced additional struggles. Um, a lot of times the added needs for uh, people who are blind are dismissed in departments of transportation as you know, too difficult to address maybe not addressing enough people through their own ignorance of the fact that the very things that we might do to help people who are blind actually help us all. One of the biggest things we need is more signalized crossings in so many parts of this country. Um, and that is every bit as important to those who are sighted. The fact of the matter is, and I don't know if this will make people feel better or worse, but those same planners and engineers are just as dismissive of me, uh, you know, a white middle-class sighted human being when, when I go ask for a crossing as for any other group. I choose to take that as empowering that they're just shutting us down because they don't want to do something different than they do. Uh, that they do on a regular basis. And there are ways to deal with people like that. Um, one of which is uh, to bring in the elected officials who often duck these issues. They hide behind technical decision makers, pretending they have no responsibility for the agencies that they oversee. And they should not be permitted to do it. If they come in and cite their engineers, my organization cites the results and points out to those elected leaders that they were elected to fix the results. And if they wish to hide behind the engineers who are producing such bad results, then they also own those results. Um, Dangerous by Design has been a very helpful way to do that because it ranks communities. In our next version, we are going to make clear that just because a community is not in the top 20 most dangerous uh, for pedestrians communities in the country doesn't mean they're going in the right direction. It just means somebody else is doing that much worse, which is unfortunately uh, often the case. 
Um, also recognizing that our roadways are becoming significantly more complicated. That's a problem for drivers because they have to look in a lot more directions, but it's only a problem for drivers when they're going too fast for that complexity. So again, bringing down those speeds and changing the rules over how speeds are set is a big priority in my organization and my partners at places like America Walks. Um, and we are trying to work with other organizations that have more technical chops on these issues. So the National Association of City Transportation Officials has been extraordinarily helpful at writing their own design guidelines. And I think uh, they are starting to really focus on the complexity of the roadway itself and how to make space for all kinds of different modes including regular bikes, electric bikes, scooters, uh, like I said, people walking and rolling and vehicles and transit uh, uh, vehicles and trucks and all the other things we find in our cities, including today, places in the street to eat um, and, uh, and, and parklets and all kinds of, of, of different uh, uses. Um, I would follow what they're up to in terms of more technical specifications about how to design a road in this um, ever-increasing uh, and complex environment, which just happens to be the old-fashioned way the roads were before uh, auto advocates cleared the road of everything except for those driving for the simplicity of the automobile. I will say uh, just a couple more things. One is a great way to teach localities and states um, that we can do things differently is through demonstration projects. We do a lot of technical as uh, assistance with states and localities that involve a very low cost, and I mean in the tens of thousands of dollars, demonstration project on a strip of roadway using things like paint and uh, uh, delineators, and uh, it, just various low-cost treatments, temporary treatments that change the way both drivers and non-drivers interact with that roadway. And by doing that, it allows the agency to, it shows them that something different can be done, but it also shows them internally what are the barriers to doing things differently. So instead of treating these projects as a series of one-offs, all of which has to be a fight, they can address actual uh, systematic issues so that these sorts of projects, particularly multimodal projects, those that accommodate those outside of a car, are more standard and easy to build. It also allows the public that might be a little skeptical of change, and that is a natural thing for a human to be skeptical of, to get to see it on a temporary basis and to, to feel it and touch it and understand how it impacts them so that they can give more useful feedback to the transportation agency. Too often, we give people sketches that you know, I work in transportation and I don't understand what it's going to mean when it's part of my built environment. I can't close, I, I can't go into my mind and create a virtual 
reality environment and understand what that new situation is going to mean for me. But that's kind of what we expect from everybody. And then we don't understand why the feedback changes over time, especially once people come in contact with the changes that they're making. Demonstration projects help people feel the change and be able to directly engage with the engineers about what they like and what they don't like. And therefore, it makes changes easier, not just on the agency, but on the community and those impacted. We've seen incredible success come from just doing one or two demonstration projects within one jurisdiction. I will also say it's important to seek regional solutions. If you're doing it jurisdiction by jurisdiction, you're going to have a problem because that doesn't create a network, starting with the fact that roads within one jurisdiction are owned by different levels of government. Some roads will be state-owned, some will be county-owned, some will be owned by the locality. If the locality is building a road that's safe to walk on, but the county and the state aren't, you're going to face different levels of danger every time you cross the street. And that is not what we're talking about. Imagine if to use the roadway as a driver, you had to change the car you were in every time you switched into uh, a different jurisdiction's roadway. It would be non-functional. So it's non-functional when all levels of government are using standards that are of varying use and safety to those outside of a car. It's also why it's dangerous to outsource the building of active transportation accommodations to developers. They only have control over the space in front of their property. And if they built roadways that way, we would have segments of roadway that end from from lot to lot. That's what we have a lot with sidewalks. Um, We can't allow that. The city has to take, and, and the county and the state have to take ownership over travel for those outside of a car the same way they do inside of a car. So again, I will end by saying we have a new infrastructure bill with a lot of new money in it. It provides all of the tools and flexibility needed to make our roadways safer and all the flexibility needed for states that might not care about that result to duck that responsibility. And therefore, it's going to be of the utmost importance to make the elected representatives, the leaders of your community, face the results, both in terms of safety, but also in terms of access to opportunity and necessities for those outside of a car. Even those these days that often, quote, choose, unquote, to drive, may not realize it was never a choice. They may not have consciously said to themselves, um, I, I affirmatively choose to spend $8,000 extra a year on a new car rather than get around outside of a car. But often they're making that choice, that quote choice, unquote, because if they didn't make it, they couldn't reach the things that they need to reach. That's not a choice. That is, uh, that, that is a, a really appalling circumstance. And then not everybody has that choice, either due to, uh, you know, their own ability to drive themselves. Um, I couldn't because uh, back when I was in college and, and for many years outside of college, I couldn't afford a car. 
So it wasn't a choice I could make. Um, and, and people face many impediments to getting around by car. It's time to force our elected leaders to account for a system that excludes so many of us. And even those who aren't excluded forces them to own something that loses value by the very hour in order to accomplish the basic necessities of their day or put their their physical safety at risk to do it outside of a vehicle. I am happy to answer any questions that folks have or brainstorm problems that you've run into um, and ways to fight back against some of the most common excuses for not doing what uh, most of the, the developed world has been doing for decades. I would love to go first. This is Sheila. Thank you so much for being here and for your energy enthusiasm. And I cannot wait to go to the Transportation for America portal and check out some of your FAQs and get some of these questions to the mysteries of how does this work? How does that work? I think that'll be a really valuable tool for everybody. The question I would like to ask you right now is I'd like you to circle back to when you were talking about um, the elected officials hiding behind the traffic engineers and and how there's sort of an endless circle game. And I know I've done a lot of work um, for accessible pedestrian signals, and um, we as blind people believe, and we're getting closer to getting it legislated, getting it to be a best standard that any time there is a traffic signal, it needs to be an accessible pedestrian signal. Um, But so you've got people who think it would be much safer to have a signal somewhere and there aren't any. And and I think it's even worse in the cities. We have a lot of uh, crossing signals that are not that are not accessible, but we have a lot of them where they're needed. But in the country, I know in rural environments, they don't even have them. But one of the things that I have encountered in my local advocacy here in Kansas City is they like to quote their engineer studies. They like to say, well, you know, it's not warranted here, or it's warranted there, it's not warranted here. So when somebody, uh, quotes, um, that kind of, um, and I know you say it's not written in stone, so I would just like a little bit more ammunition to go after those guys when they say, well, you know, we put sensors here, we've stood out and watched this intersection, it's not warranted, yet people have been killed there and people don't feel safe crossing. Yeah, I like to um, uh, take it out of the technical speak and say it back at them with the elected there. That's one of my favorite things to do. So, um, you know, they mean warrant in terms of of their technical rules about when they accommodate uh, uh, particular people based on existing or pre-existing demand. And, you know, they talk about warrants as if they're permits or things like that. Um, And so... Uh, I like to find um, uh, synonyms for a lot of their terms and and try uh, to ask them if that's is that's really what they mean. Um, so a synonym for warranted is needed. And so 
I like to say, so what you're saying is it is in your engineering judgment that there is no need to make it safe for the people who might have to cross here to cross here, like the people who crossed here and were killed or the people who wish they could cross there, but feel unsafe. You don't think that that is warranted and make them deal with it. One thing you need to know is engineers don't see themselves as making policy. This is a really important thing. They think they're following a standard and that the policy is someone else's decision. So this is a point to create a little tension because it is the electeds that allow the underlying policy to stand. So I like to point out to the engineer that they have made the value judgment that until people risk their lives there in big enough numbers, they don't consider it necessary, another synonym to warranted, to, uh, to make it safe. That, and then I like to put the question in terms of the underlying policy decision. How many people have to risk their lives there before you'll feel comfortable making it safe for them to cross? What, what, is, what does your warrant say in terms of how many people must put themselves in physical danger at that point? We, we need to know for our advocacy efforts. And are you suggesting that we put together enough people to make that dangerous crossing for your observation? Those tend to be rather in your face and difficult conversations, but unfortunately it's what they need to face. It is what they're saying and they'll try to duck it. But uh, that, that is, that is the determination they're making. Now, those engineers may not have a say over the documents that require that analysis. And that is why you need to have, uh, the pressure from the electeds above. And that's where you can kind of rescue the engineer and say to the elected, you've left this person with no alternative. You have okayed a policy that says until a certain number of people from my community risk their lives that he does not have the power to put in a crossing. Is that what you meant? That starts to break things down. That's incredibly good advice. Um, Chris, did you have any questions or anything you wanted to bring up before we open it to raise hands? And and thank you, Beth, for your presentation. Um, One thing that, strikes me listening to you is how important it could be uh, for people to form and use coalitions, whether they're uh, speaking to somebody at their state department of transportation in their capital city, or whether they're going to deal with the local planning and zoning commission. Um, One of the problems that we have as blind people is that Uh, Some of our natural allies, uh, sometimes like America Walks or uh, Vision Zero uh, or even folks in Complete Streets, they also don't understand uh, some of the difficulties that we face as blind and low vision people in trying to negotiate uh, the world, whether it is a lack of sidewalks, um, so that we have to, in a sense, walk in the street, 
or whether that we have to share a relatively narrow sidewalk with bicyclists and e-bikes and e-scooters and skateboarders, um, or uh, uh, whether uh, there's just uh, floating bus stops that make it very difficult for us to cross the street because there's no way that we can tell if it's uh, for, set up for bicycles, we can't necessarily hear a bicycle. So it's very difficult for us to deal with those issues. So not only do we have to educate the decision makers, the elected decision makers, the traffic engineers, um, the planning boards, et cetera, we also have to educate the people that are working to improve uh, walking and multimodal transportation. And I think that's something we have to do if we're going to be successful. And I wondered whether you had any thoughts about that. Chris, I'm so glad you asked that question. I'm going to answer the easier one first and then come back to your latter question, which is a big challenge. Um, one is I think all of us in the advocacy community need to, uh, coalitions are so important because Unfortunately, loudness seems to be what's important these days in terms of, of changing people's minds. Again, when you know these things, you can use them to your advantage, but it's almost more important to show up to support what we want than it is to show up to demand a change. What I have found is when changes have been made to the design of a roadway, those who are fearful of change or those who feel like they've been disadvantaged because maybe they have to stop for an entirety of 10 seconds to allow a human being to safely cross, they show up and fuss very, very, very loudly. So having a coalition that can inform people of where major decisions are being made and particularly show up for those elected officials that are pushing for change and back them up is going to be huge. Um, it has been very frustrating to see how many elected officials have tried to do the right things, but then, you know, the, the, the loud folks who, you know, just don't want change or don't want to give up any advantage at all uh, are able to stifle it. So that's the easier question. The second question is a phenomenal one, which is how to remind people that their experience is not the same as everybody else's experience. And this is something I think we are all facing in a multitude of ways. You know, I, uh, I have been forced as a, a white woman to realize the challenges of walking around with a different color skin which I probably understood on some level before, but getting into the specifics over the last few years as Black Lives Matter have you know, gained in, uh, in attention and raising some of these issues and other groups has forced us to look at a lot more detail. The same thing is true, not just for the blind community, but you know, the, those who are using mobility-assisted devices these are people that have to negotiate the world very differently and differently from each other. And yet we have to find a way to accommodate all people. What I find a little frustrating in, um, in, in the community is a lack of recognition of how the changes needed for the blind are also often very, very helpful for all of us. I find that's true in so many cases. The, uh, the ramps on uh, or the curb cuts were not built for me, 
but boy, did they make a big difference to me, you know, when I was pushing a stroller or when I hurt my knee. Um, and, and the, the notice, uh, for the accessible crossings that this side of the street is the one where you can go. I have found particularly useful even for me, um, you know, when it's a particularly wide intersection. We are going to have to find ways to talk about how, as long as you're putting in a crossing, why are we not making it accessible? The difference in cost is, is so minimal. It's, it's ridiculous. And find ways to put that into some of the standards that we are creating. I see some opportunity in working with groups like the National Association of City Transportation Officials. I see some opportunity in new techniques for storytelling that I think have really broken through on on some of these issues. Um, We did uh, a series with The Last Dangerous by Design that, uh, that showed for, I mean, for the sighted community, obviously, but um, what it's like to move around in a wheelchair in most of America and kind of forcing people to look at it, which again, understood in theory, but being, being forced to put yourself in that person's place matters. So maybe that's something we can work on together going forward is explaining some of those specifics and while I have found it very difficult to share a sidewalk with a bicycle, which I also can't hear very well, um, it's even worse when you can't see the bike coming. Uh, and a lot of times they're not giving us notice. They're not ringing their bells. They're not saying, hey, I'm on your left or anything like that. I would love to look at ways to work with you all to tell that story, um, maybe through Dangerous by Design or other uh, reports that we do, and look for ways to build the needs of uh, those uh, who are blind into a lot of the standards for what it what makes a, a good uh, best practice in a multimodal road so that when a city comes to us and says, what should we do? We're saying what they should do for everybody. That's terrific. Thank you ever so much for saying that. I think we'll take you up on that. <laughs> I think Definitely. Okay. Yeah, one of the more effective um, ways that I've been involved, not so much here in North Carolina, but when I lived in New York State was um, we would set a a range for, um, we'd have an orientation and mobility specialist and, you know, some other people. I worked for a guide dog school, so we had some guide dog instructors help us with this too. We would, we invited local transportation officials, engineers, and elected officials to come and experience what it's like to cross the street without being able to see and what, you know, what an accessible pedestrian signal meant and what it would do. And once they had to put on a sleep shade and walk with someone across the street, and then we would say, we would have them stand at the intersection and say, okay, tell me when you think it's safe for you to cross. And they would just be so blown away that, you know, they couldn't do it or they eventually could, but they were terrified. And and a number of them really did change their minds and start to help us advocate. Um, That was, you know, that was kind of, and I'm wondering if, if people from NACTO might be willing to help us pull that, do some of those kinds of things. 
I think that's um, a wonderful suggestion. I also think it might be a good suggestion for advocates themselves. Those very mm-hmm. models that Chris was talking about, you mm-hmm. know, maybe thinking about doing that sort of activity around one uh, an America Walks uh, meeting or uh, an ACTO meeting or something like that. Uh, also, some of these pull some uh, elected officials in. Having that, yeah, we had done that. Yeah, that helped. Great, that helped. Um, Chris or Sheila, do you have any other questions before we see if there's any raised hands? I would love to hear what the audience has to ask. Okay, so do we need to give instructions on hand raising, or are they already going up, Chanel? They have been going up. We currently (laughs) have six, and first up is Paul Hunt. Paul, you may unmute. Hello, um, I have a question. the presentation is very, very good. I'm hearing something for the first time this year about safe shared spaces. And there's spaces that can be shared by automobiles, pedestrians, bicyclists. That's the concept scares the heck out of me. Can you tell us about those? Sure. Um, you know, it's one of the things that, uh, that, was immediately obliterated in the early auto times. So when cars first came, you know, became relatively prevalent, the the number of crashes and fatalities, particularly with uh, pedestrians, just skyrocketed. And actually, uh, the auto manufacturers generated the word jaywalking, which means country bumpkin walking, um, was to tell pedestrians they didn't belong in the street. And we've had a long march back to creating the complex roadway environment that we abandoned back then. But what it really relies on is incredibly slow movement by everybody that is on any kind of machine, including a bike. Um, we've seen some really successful shared streets in different parts of the country. Here in Washington, DC, there's one right by uh, the uh, the river uh, that is uh, basically a five mile per hour road for drivers, but really anybody can just mill about the space. And it, uh, it they seem to have extremely high uh, uh, safety records, very good safety records, because it forces everyone in the roadway to communicate with each other in some way, shape, or form. And it does create more of a shared environment. Um, It's had a lot of success abroad. These were not unusual things um, uh, in in European uh, cities and even in Canada. Uh, The U.S. has just started to try them again. But there are not a lot of examples yet. So uh, it's going to take a, a lot more work uh, to see, to even have a list of best, best practices because they are so unusual. And I would, say, and I would add to for Paul that I've looked at some of those studies, uh, both in Australia and in Europe, and um, I haven't found any that actually made an effort to include people with vision impairments or oh, other yeah. disabilities in those studies in the methodology, um, and I think that's a that's a shortcoming of those studies. I'm sure you're right. 
and it is a, a, a gigantic shortcoming. When you're ready, your next hand comes from Ray Campbell, who is unmuted. All right. Good afternoon. Thank you for hey there, Ray. this presentation. Hey there, everybody. You're always unmuted, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all right. No peanut, the guy was from the peanut gallery there. Um, first of all, Beth, excellent presentation. Um, one of the uh, one of the things that we often get asked, though, and I'm involved in some litigation, uh, accessible mm -hmm. pedestrian signals right now. Uh, but one of the things that we often get asked when we're asking for something like an accessible pedestrian signal is two things we get asked. How much is it going to cost? And the, the, the bigger one that frustrates me even more is how, how many people are going to benefit from this if we spend this money and put this in? Can you give us some counter arguments that we can use to some of those? Thanks very much. Uh, well, First, can I ask you a question? Um, are, so are you a lawyer then? Are you actually uh, in charge of some of these cases? No, Ray's, uh, Ray's a, a member of the uh, <clears throat> ACB of Metropolitan Chicago. I'm here. It has a lawsuit here, against um, the city of Chicago. Okay, and, I see. Yep. yep. Well, number one. I want to find more lawyers to bring more suits because, frankly, one of the most successful things we need to do is make it much more painful for these uh, departments to ignore uh, those walking, biking, taking transit, uh, those who need accessible crossings, things like that. Um, having rolled up my sleeves and gotten to work with those engineers within the department, I can tell you they are very afraid of lawsuit if they deviate from the design in the manuals that are built only for people driving, and they couldn't be less afraid of lawsuit from the other side or people dying because we haven't made space for pedestrians. So and just a quick time check is five minutes left. Sorry about that. Go no ahead. problem. I think we need to adjust their benefit cost analysis before they ask us these questions. So that I will say up top. Um, and the other thing is keep in mind that in terms of benefit, when the engineers are talking about benefit, they're talking about something that they call travel time savings. They don't mm -hmm. actually measure the time saved by any individual traveler. They just look at the speeds and they assume if they're faster, people are saving time even though we've learned that when you go faster, there are things you have to do that lengthen trips so that we don't actually lose time, but they can count it as a saving. So that's a benefit versus the cost of stopping travel. Um, we've been working on measuring overall access to jobs and essential services, um, which you can do using uh, the technology you have in a smartphone, basically using mapping technology. <laughs> you know, it's not even a new technology, uh, but we're trying to get the states to use that relatively old technology so that they can see how their system is creating the economic benefit of connecting people to the jobs and services they need or hindering and blocking that uh, uh, through not doing it. Also getting into the cost per household of transportation when walking is not an option. Um, so that's another Especially these thing. days. 
Yes, exactly right. <laughs> it's a big cost savings to not have to drive everywhere, which is why those who live in walkable communities pay so much more to live there. We've made those communities hard to build and illegal to build in a lot of places. So we've kept the supply way down. The demand's been through the roof for decades, and we're shocked that the cost goes up. So right. I'd look to quantify some of those other things. And then okay. I would, uh, you know, when I was at the U.S. Department of Transportation, I was also always asked how I would feel about an action that I took showing up on the front of the, the Washington Post. And so that's <laughs> another question I like to ask the engineers is, um, well, how do you think that question will sound when uh, you're asked about it in, by a newspaper reporter when someone dies there? <laughs> oh, <Love yeah>. <laughs> well on that note <laughs> well Beth thank you ever so much for a, a tremendous presentation well thank yeah, you for really inviting me and I really do look forward to working with you all more closely I I think there's a lot I need to learn about uh, what we need to make sure we're putting in in our technical assistance and like I said I want to do better at storytelling for all different people who are trying to move throughout our communities so that it becomes more obvious to those who are supposed to be serving us by designing and creating our roadway system. Well, we really look forward to growing this partnership with, with you and, and working with you and being part of a coalition with you. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time and the energy um, and we appreciate your passion and your commitment. It means a lot to us and we would like to keep it going. So thank any, you so any, much. Any thank closing you. comments for anyone else? All right. Well, thanks um, to all of the ACB media people and the streamers and everybody involved with making this actually happen. And uh, we hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you for joining us. This episode of the ACB Advocacy Update has been made possible in part through the support of ACB of Minnesota. ACBM wants to send along heartfelt greetings to all of its family throughout the ACB community. Having hosted two outstanding and invigorating ACB national conventions, they are committed to expanding opportunity for Americans who are blind and visually impaired. ACBM supports the James R. Olson Memorial Scholarship honoring one of its past members, and they continue to not let life during these challenging times slow down. ACBM invites all to their informative bi-monthly community conference calls, ranging on everything from sports and technology to gardening and loving life in the land of 10,000 lakes. They hold quarterly monthly membership meetings, monthly coffee gatherings, and monthly board meetings. To learn more about ACBM, visit their website at www acbminnesota.org or call 612-223-5543. ACBM, a supporter of the ACB Media Network.